Listener Production. I'm Dr. Sophie Calabretto, and this is Demystifying Forensics, our forensic science mini-series here on The Science Briefing. Today, is forensic science unreliable? We've already talked about DNA, figuring out a crime thanks to bloodstains, and trying to narrow down exactly when someone died. But there are so many more forensic practices that we haven't touched on, and unfortunately, sometimes their accuracy gets blown way out of proportion. Jacinta Bowler, Cosmos Magazine journalist, you helped us kick off this series. It's only right you help us round it out. Now, across the board, how reliable would you say the forensic sciences actually are? That's a very big question to start with, Sophie. Yes. (laughs) It's hard to make a sweeping statement like that, I guess. But I would say that no evidence is perfect. But as you collect more evidence, the puzzle becomes clearer. In this series, we've talked about different methods and how they're estimations. Mm -hmm. And while forensic sciences are definitely rooted in science, not all of them are exact sciences. For sure. So yes, today I want to unpack that a bit more and focus on some of the forensic methods that are, for the most part, unreliable. Let's do it then, Jacinta. Where do you want to start? I think I'm going to start with fingerprints. (laughs) Yes, cool. So fingerprints, as you probably know, have been used for identifying criminals or individuals for nearly 100 years. And for those 100 years, fingerprinting was seen as foolproof even more foolproof than DNA is seen today. But this has changed quite a bit over the years. And today, while they're still collected from crime scenes, they're not used or relied on nearly as much. Oh, I didn't know that. Why is that? There are quite a few unreliable elements to fingerprints. For one, fingerprints at a crime scene can sometimes be partial prints. Mm -hmm. So to explain this, If you only see half or a quarter of someone's face and then put it next to a bunch of different people who look similar, it would be harder to work out which quarter face is the right person. Sure, I agree with that, yeah. Yeah, it's the same deal with fingerprints. You've got less points on the fingerprint to be able to work out which one is the correct one. Also, the idea that fingerprints are entirely individual has actually never been scientifically (gasps) proven. What? Yeah. So, I mean, it could be the case, but also there could be multiple people in the world that have the same fingerprints. No. And at least 23 people in the United States have been wrongly connected to crime scene prints. So they're not infallible by any means. Yeah, that's too many. That's way too many, Jacinda. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay, so the most high-profile case of this is a guy called Brandon Mayfield. Brandon was detained in 2004 after the Madrid train bombings. Mm -hmm. Spanish police found fingerprints on a bag that had detonating devices inside. And when they went through the FBI and Interpol, they found 20 possible fingerprint matches. Now, the FBI concluded that Brandon's fingerprints were a 100% match. Okay. However, his fingerprints were not an exact match. They were just similar to the other ones that had been found. Um, It was later discovered that the FBI were profiling this man based on the fact that he was a Muslim and had recently converted to Islam. Oh, that's terrible, Jacinda. That's so bad. 
So the Spanish police didn't end up going with, you know, the 100% match <laughs> findings of the FBI. Instead, they went with a different suspect who was in Madrid at the time. Yeah. And that meant that the FBI looked pretty stupid. And actually, some lawsuits followed and it resulted in a $2 million settlement for Brandon. Hectic. Yeah. So don't put all your eggs in the fingerprints basket then, I guess. Yeah. Seriously, don't do that. That being said, fingerprints are still collected. Having multiple forms of evidence can be really helpful. And if there's no DNA evidence at a crime scene, for instance, fingerprints are a good backup. Another bit of forensics that you probably know about and likely know that you should also take with a grain of salt mm-hmm. are polygraph tests. Ah, okay. So lie detector tests where you're hooked up to the machine with the thing strapped around your arms and chest and fingers and it goes bing and then the Scientologist stole part of it as well and used it in their <laughs> shtick. Yes, exactly the one. Um, and you might already know this too, but polygraph tests are not actually used in crime investigations. I did know this, and it seems like one of the main uses of polygraph tests is just in those Vanity Fair YouTube videos where they strap celebrities up and ask them basically compromising questions, which I'm really into. That's definitely one use. In 1998, the US Supreme Court ruled that there was no scientific consensus on the reliability of polygraph tests and they shouldn't be used. That's a while ago. <laughs> A major part of this is the fact that you can trick polygraph tests. Mm -hmm. So when you do a polygraph, your pulse rate, blood pressure and respiration are all measured. And they're supposed to change when you tell a lie. But if you think about it, if you were asked a wild question about something that you didn't do, like, did you murder your mother, Sophie? Just being asked that question is surely going to throw you off or make you nervous, yeah. especially when you're hooked up to a machine with bands strapped across you. And like Jacinda, I didn't. I didn't do what I swear. <laughs> but is your heart rate going up? <laughs> I'm a little bit stressed now from the accusation. Yes. <laughs> um, and on the flip side of that, there are people that can stay completely calm when they're lying through their teeth. So it's, it's just an unreliable system and bad science. Yeah, okay, so maybe we just leave the polygraph tests for Vanity Fair then. I think that's okay. And maybe don't trust the answers, even for the celebrities. Mm, true. There's a bunch of other bunk forensic science that I want to race through as well. So there's tyre prints and footprints. Ooh, yes. So tracking a car or someone who's run or driven away from the scene. Now, both of these can have a certain tread pattern from the manufacturer. So that's the pattern on the bottom of the shoe or the tyre. But there's also like marks on the ground that are individual characteristics. So how you walk or how long since you've changed your tires, for example. Mm -hmm. But trying to deduce it's you is incredibly difficult to do. Mm. Think about trying to measure how you walk or taking your weight and size into account and then comparing that against the footprints in like a muddy, grassy environment where you might have found them. That's just not at all easy to do. No. So prints today are more often used to rule out a suspect rather than rule them in. Right. And then there's bite marks. And Sophie, this is wild, but people have literally been arrested and jailed for bite marks, but also for bite marks that didn't actually belong to them. Jacinta, I'm just going to say that when you brought out bite marks, this just seems like none of my business. (laughs) Well, it's apparently not the forensic scientist's business either. There you go. <laughs> in 1992, a man called Ray Crone was convicted of murder and sentenced to death, largely based on evidence that matched his teeth to a bite mark on the deceased person. 
He spent 10 years in prison before he was released and was exonerated after DNA on the victim's clothes was matched to another offender. Sentenced to death for bite marks that weren't even yours? We need to be better at this. We fully need to be better at this, and we're currently not. And on that note, in 2015, the US FBI admitted that 32 people had been sentenced to death based on hair analysis that was flawed. Oh my gosh. So hair analysis is when they look at two pieces of hair under a microscope and decide these two are either the same or not the same. Okay, yeah. So it's not DNA analysis. It's just looking at hair. Yeah, physically looking at the hair. You can use hair for DNA analysis. However, there's more to talk about with DNA as well. Yeah. So in our last episode, we talked about how DNA is incredibly accurate at placing you somewhere, but it doesn't necessarily paint the best picture of the context around those events. Yeah, exactly. So I want to talk about one specific thing that Uh paints a really good picture of this. Every time you want to talk about one specific thing, Jacinta, I get a little bit concerned. (laughs) How are they? More awful than the last one. That's right. So there was this woman who later became known as the Phantom of Heilbronn. From 1993 to 2009, her DNA was found on 40 different crime scenes. (laughs) Oh my. From murders to burglaries all around Austria, France and Germany. Gets around. She was thought to be this mass serial killer traveling across international borders, hence the phantom. Except later, it was discovered that the DNA on the cotton swabs that the police had been using was showing her DNA because this woman worked at the factory that made the cotton swabs. Oh my gosh, <laughs> just that is, that's bad. It's so bad. <laughs> but this isn't the only case of this happening. And it's closer to home too. There's actually an inquiry into forensic DNA testing in Queensland currently underway. Oh. Thousands of DNA samples that have been used to convict or release people from crimes have been reviewed thanks to poor management and poor science practices from a particular testing facility. So while DNA is an incredibly accurate science, like everything though, if humans aren't doing their jobs right, the DNA analysis just won't be as strong or reliable. This paints a bit of a sad picture for forensic sciences. I mean, quite a few of the methods that everyday people most likely associate with criminal investigations aren't so reliable. So, I mean, really what I'm asking is what should our major takeaway be when it comes to what we should expect from the forensic process? I think the thing to remember is that forensics is an incredibly difficult field of science. It's constantly updating and changing. It has a lot of uncertainties. But there are people in forensics doing great work. Obviously, there's some that are doing not so great work too. Yeah. But those doing the great work can pull together multiple forms of forensic analysis and ways to make sure we identify the right people. So that's robbers, murderers, and the others responsible for pretty horrific crimes. Jacinta, delightful. Such a pleasure as always. (laughs) Thank you for wrapping up this forensic series with us. My pleasure. If you ever need someone to come explain the gruesome again, you know where to find me. I'm always up for talking about maggots. Jacinta Bowler is a science journalist for Cosmos magazine. 
You can read more of Jacinta's reporting by heading to cosmosmagazine.com. And if you haven't heard the rest of our demystifying forensic series, just look back in the science briefing feed for parts one to three. The science briefing is produced by Listener and the Royal Institution of Australia. This episode was produced by Jake Morecambe. Mixing by Dave Stein. I'm Dr. Sophie Calabretto. Catch you next time.